our reading today, Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. With today's gospel, I can't help but recall a scene from the TV series, The West Wing. You probably remember this series. It was in the late 90s into, in, into the 2000s. Uh, it was a show about a Democrat president. It, it was a, a show that actually uh, loosely spanned the George W. Bush era. But instead, in this fictitious show, fictional show, the president is a Democrat and is played by Martin Sheen, who is President Jed Bartlett, the economics professor who becomes the governor of New Hampshire and then is elected as president of the United States. In the particular episode that I'm speaking of, White House Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman, who's played by Bradley Whitford, is given a laminated card to keep in his wallet with instructions what to do in case of a nuclear attack. He gets this card from a National Security Council official in front of his boss, Leo McGarry, who is the White House Chief of Staff. And Lyman is trying to comprehend you know, the gravitas of this card that he gets. And he says, oh, uh, so what happens? Do I bring my staff with me? Uh, his question lingers in the air and is met with an uncomfortable silence. There's a meaningful glance exchanged between Leo McGarry and the National Security Council officer. And from that meaningful glance, it dawns on Lyman that his staff is not going to be rescued in this doomsday scenario. And the horrible truth sits with Lyman and troubles him. Now, he's a brilliant political strategist, and he's also uh, naive romantic, avoidant, sarcastic, and sometimes goofy. And as this episode unfolds, he asks around, he's asking his peers, other senior staff in the White House, how they feel about leaving their own support staff behind in the event of a nuclear attack. Slowly, he learns that he's the only senior staff member other than Leo who will receive protection in the event of a nuclear attack. Uncomfortable about his special status as one of the few who will be in the bunker or up on Air Force One, uncomfortable with that, he decides to return his card, believing that he does not deserve to be singled out in this way. If such a calamity were to happen, he says, I'll take my chances. I want to be with friends and family. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? Jesus asks and then answers his own question. No, I tell you, but rather division. It's the cost of following Jesus. Every household will be divided, three against two and two against three. Jesus wants those who follow him to understand not just the rewards of this new, <clears throat> of this new life, this kingdom of God, but also the cost they will pay. As people of faith, we're given a glimpse into a reality that we don't often perceive. For a moment, we see the world as God sees it, full of beauty, fragile life, abundant love, as Scott was preaching last week. 
And yet at the same time, humanity has its limitations and the world is cruelly mutilated by violence, rancor, and hate. This is very powerful stuff from Luke 12, 49 to 56, and from the first lesson today, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. This is pretty powerful stuff, especially for a lovely late summer Sunday morning. In today's readings, we have some astonishing images. The Christ who brings division, and the God who is nearby, but is also in control fully of heaven and earth, and can be disappointed. If you're like me, you might be wondering how these concepts can possibly come together, come together to give us a meaningful word for our lives. What are we to make of division and fire, baptism by death? Are these things merely reminders of the paradoxes of faith, such as God's eminence and transcendence? Or are they telling us something more? In the Quran, which is the holy word of God in the Islamic tradition, in the Quran there is a verse, God is closer to you than your jugular vein. God is wholly other. The jugular is the most vulnerable point in our body, yet we are dependent upon it for our very lives. Even at our most vulnerable, God who is wholly other in other words, God is God, and not we are not God. God is, even in our most vulnerable uh, times, God is there to protect us. We all know that life can be very painful, sometimes in expected ways, and sometimes in ways we never dreamed of. Sometimes just a little, and sometimes it's beyond our capacity to endure. So, we all know that suffering is an indelible part of the human experience. The questions that today's readings raise are these. What relationship does God have with the suffering and loss that is built into our lives? Where is God when calamity, when calamity strikes? One sort of answer to this question is found in the Hebrew Bible reading we heard today from Isaiah. So let's revisit that reading for just a moment. I'll read it for you again, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, and explain it as best I can. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 begins as a love song. It's a sonnet. It's, it's, a, it's a song, a poem to the Beloved. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now the narration shifts suddenly here. So it's not the voice of the narrator any longer, but the voice of the beloved of Yahweh. The next verse continues in Yahweh's voice. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there that I could do for my vineyard than than, than I had already done? What more could I have done for this vineyard? Than I already did. 
what I expected it, when I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And now another shift to the narrator's voice. The narrator says in the next verse, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. So the narrator reveals for us in those last two verses that the vineyard is a metaphor for Israel. And the vines are the people of Judah. And they are producing wild grapes, which is a great disappointment to God. And the last two verses identify that the deeds of the people are the wild grapes. They continue in their ways uh, that, of violence that lead to bloodshed, and those who are oppressed let out their cry. This is why God is disappointed. So in the Song of the Vineyard, Isaiah pronounces Yahweh's judgment upon the people of Judah and Jerusalem for their unfaithfulness. Now, a little backstory here. Uh, to keep this in perspective, this is uh, this was written in the eighth century BCE. It was during a time when there were military military advances from Assyria, who was in alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel, against Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, in 721, the Israelite city of Samara, Samaria, sorry. Um, fell to the Assyrians and they advanced further on the gates of Judah. Isaiah was uh, a prophet who was a consult to the king and he gave the advice to the king, don't respond in kind, don't form any military alliances to rebuke the Assyrians, don't form any political alliances. Instead, put your whole trust in Yahweh. During one of the periods when the Assyrians were at the kingdom of Judah's gates, Isaiah pronounced his famous Davidic oracle, prophesying that the Messiah will come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse and will establish the peaceable kingdom in which the wolf will dwell with a lamb. That's Isaiah 11.6. Isaiah's prophetic vision of a peaceful world has inspired a lot of people through history. The image of swords being beaten into plowshares is one of the most powerful metaphors in the Bible and is widely used in artistic representations of disarmament. For instance, if you visit the UN headquarters in New York, out front of the building is uh, a, a statue uh, about Isaiah 11.6. Visions of peace founded on justice, righteousness, and trust are also represented in the masterpiece painting The Peaceable Kingdom, 
by Edward Hicks, which was painted in 1830. This is a very famous, iconic vision. It's the bucolic vision of the lion dwelling with the lamb. And it represents the reuniting of humanity into a single fold under one shepherd, which derives from the prophetic ideal of ending all divisions and conflicts. Now, by no means were all the prophets peaceful. The role of the prophet was not to deliver good news and peace, but to deliver an uncomfortable and unpleasant message to those in power. In the Song of the Vineyard, Isaiah announces doom to Israel because, driven by greed for power and wealth, the upper class had developed oppressive structures and habits that deprived poorer citizens of their rights. Immediately following the song, immediately following verse 7, I think this is confirmed in the very next verse, verse 8. Ah, you who join house to house, who add field to field until there is room for no one but you, and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. So the wealthy people, the rich people were getting richer. They were acquiring field after field, house after house, and growing their wealth, but at whose expense? At this time, small landowners were forced to mortgage their property to pay their debts, and they lost their property when debts could not be paid. Thus, the land accumulated in the hands of the wealthy. As the poor were dispossessed, they began to work the land for other people, like sharecroppers. And this enriched the landowning elite, who were absentee landlords, and impoverished the rural inhabitants. This is the economic and sociological context in which Isaiah condemns Israel's failure to be fruitful in performing just and righteous deeds. Vine and wine perform a critical literary function in the song. The lines of poetry that constitute the Song of the Vineyard are the beginning of one of the harshest prophecies of doom in the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh made every possible preparation for a fruitful harvest, but what he got were wild grapes. This is a major complaint. What Yahweh had hoped for, justice and righteousness, did not happen. Yahweh had expected the people of Judah and Jerusalem to do better. And judgment came in the form of the defilement of the vineyard. He says, I will make it a waste. In short, this allegory shows us that the judgment found in Isaiah, and in the prophets in general, comes in the form of the destructive consequences that result from people's own choices. People were given the freedom to respond to Yahweh faithfully. But instead, Yahweh's people followed their own devices, resulting in violence, bloodshed, that led the people to cry out because of injustice. Here, there is more than a hint of human responsibility. In this final verse, the prophet makes clear the chasm between Yahweh's positive expectations and what the people deliver. This is a commentary on the covenantal love of Yahweh for Yahweh's people and their infidelity. The inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah 
were invited not only to judge for themselves, could Yahweh have done more, but to pass judgment on themselves. Yahweh gives freely and generously, which produces within people feelings of trust, devotion, and willingness to serve. Yet even while Yahweh bestows great benefits, people sometimes disappoint. The real drama lies in the heart of Yahweh. Yahweh suffers. Here is a parent with a wayward child. We all know the heavy feeling in our stomachs when we hear our mother or father say to us, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Isaiah holds up a mirror to his listeners so that they can see that separated by social and economic inequality, their treatment of others falls far short of Yahweh's demands for justice and righteousness. How much more just will Yahweh be with them? How can God suffer so terribly? Here's my response to that. God will never give up on us, no matter how much we fail to desire or deserve it. From Isaiah, it sounds like the vineyard is simply a case of judgment. God made the world good. It turned out evil, and so God destroyed it. God put an end to suffering. End of story. But it turns out to be much more than that. Out of this story emerges an important detail that continues to shape our faith today. There's no question that humanity, though God breathed and beautiful, is nonetheless flawed, fragile, and feckless. Yet God makes a covenant with these people who are flawed, fragile, and feckless, a people that have shown themselves to be unworthy and, un and ungrateful. God stays with us even in the face of disappointment. All of creation depends on God's desire to be with us. And the astonishing thing is that God continues to desire to be with us even when, in innumerable ways, we've shown little desire to reciprocate. In Luke's Gospel for today, which is Luke 12, 49-56, we see a discussion of the effects the Gospel may have on anyone who follows Jesus. Following Jesus will not be easy, particularly because the gospel does not always bring peace. Families may be torn apart. The gospel's effects can create division. The problem may not be in the division itself, but in how we respond to the divisions that happen in our lives. I'll say that again. The problem may not be in the division itself, but in how we respond to the divisions that happen in our lives. Jesus comes to free us from the ties that bind, to separate us from the systems that oppress and enslave. Recovering addicts often talk about the need to distance themselves from people in their past, from friends and relatives who they are afraid might encourage or enable them to return to old destructive behaviors. Holding on to a fragile sobriety might mean division from people with whom you regularly associated, even your own family. 
In the same way, Jesus today challenges us to stand apart and live into the gospel's truth. Seeking God's will for our own lives and living into it might mean a measure of division from those who hold different values, but it does not mean that we stand alone. We are accompanied by a great cloud of witnesses who have persevered before us and who cheer us on. We should be encouraged in our faith journeys by the examples of those who have run the race ahead of us. But it's not only the cloud of witnesses that accompany, accompany us on our journey. Please remember that God is not a distant, shadowy figure who is detached and removed from creation. Ours is a God that is intimate, present, and unavoidable. God and we are inseparable. And there is great comfort that comes in knowing that we are not alone in our lives. I think God does have a real place in our division and suffering, though not as its cause. God is in our hearts, loving and active, if we were only looking there. Ours is a God who shares our lives, who is closer to us than our jugular veins, who shares in our human experience so intimately that God took on flesh and blood to be among us. Having God get under our skins and into our blood is not much different than having a fire of passion kindled in our hearts. There's a place in God's kingdom for everyone, and even though none of us can ever hope to find our own way there, God finds us and brings us home. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.